probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me this week is... Alan Sanders, and hey everybody, uh, you can hear me normally on the radio. I work for both WBHF, and I also work at WSB, so some experience in radio. And one of the shows we actually do on Saturdays is actually a show about movies and comic books and heroes, so this is kind of right up my alley, so thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, Alan and I have worked on, on a couple projects together, and I know he's a, a big fan of, of these kind of movies, so it uh, just made sense to, to bring you on for sure. And Yeah, so today we're talking about Minute 36 of The Thing, which begins with uh, Clark telling the dog to, to take it easy, easy, and then ends a minute later. With, uh, with Blair standing at the back of the room as the others watch the VHS tape of the Norwegians. Alan, I know you were, you were kind of a big fan of this, this scene. This minute really kind of encapsulates one entire scene, this kind of dialogue between Clark and Blair. So I know um, as a... a uh, Alan, you've been an, an actor on a couple of projects I've been on too, so I know from an acting perspective, um, it seems like you thought this scene was, was pretty interesting. Yeah, what I loved about this particular scene and, and the way it was shot you have two different characters, obviously, in, a, in a, t- a scene of the two of them. They're looking at a dog that they're obviously examining. Did this dog also get any kind of infection? Is this dog going to be a problem like what we just saw a few minutes ago? Mm-hmm. And when you see the two of them, you get, if you watch, Blair is just looking at Clark, just trying to say, is there anything weird about him? Clark, at first, is completely oblivious. He's more worried about the dog. And that's his character, and I love that about him. He you, you get the sense this is a guy that would prefer to be around his dogs more than people. Yeah. So he doesn't even he doesn't even know where Blair's going until thirty or forty seconds into their back and forth conversation. Yeah, definitely. It's this scene is really a showcase for both of their kind of acting skills, and and they both do a fantastic job. I'm glad you brought up Clark, Clark, especially to me. I never really noticed or thought that much about him in this scene, but he's Richard Mazur is really good in this this scene because he does kind of give the the first part of it at least for sure. He definitely gives that sense where he's just totally oblivious to the fact that Blair is you know obviously very suspicious of him. And yeah, Clark is he's he's such he's this guy who definitely gets better along with animals than he does with other people, and it's almost like he doesn't understand what Blair's getting at at first, and then at a certain point, you know, he gets a little wary of what's going on. Well, I know I know from uh, some of the behind the scenes and some of the interviews that uh, that that Mazur gave, he initially wasn't being looked for in the part of Clark. That yeah. uh, and he actually I don't think he remembers which part he was that John Carpenter wanted him. But when he met John Carpenter, he said, I really like Clark. And John Carpenter was like, wait, Clark. He's like, yeah, he, he seems to, you know, he's got this thing for the dog. He feels like he's a more of the, he's, he's drawn to animals. And, and I think that's a more interesting take of this guy who cares more about our four legged friends than maybe our two legged. And, 
being a dog owner myself and, and Huskies and the whole winter dog kind of breed. I had, I had a Siberian uh, Husky. I've had an Alaskan Malamute, just adopted another Husky, love this dog. And who knows if I, maybe it's this scene when I saw this movie, when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old, <laughs> that it, it affected me that I've always loved this breed of dog, but I can identify with that. I can identify with being a dog lover and not necessarily, you know, worrying about what other people are doing. I'm worried about the dog. Yeah. Well, and especially in, in these circumstances too, he's, he's not just a dog lover, but he's a dog lover who also, you know, took the, took the next step to go all the way to Antarctica to, to take care of these dogs here. Like he's, you know, there's that extra level of like isolation added to that, just kind of, uh, you know, that he gets along better with the dogs than people. He's also way the hell down there away from everybody else too. So he's obviously not really a people person. <laughs> now let me, you, you, okay. So people person, let me ask you this because mm-hmm. he, the, the dog was actually a half wolf, half dog. It was a, it was a wolf dog hybrid that yeah. they used in the shoot. Um, the, I think his name was Jed. Mm-hmm. And I remember the handler told Richard Mazur, you know, he's going to be fine most of the time, especially in isolation. It's just the two of you working. But he, he said, if he ever just kind of like stops and gives you that kind of like dead eye look, just be real still and let, let the moment pass. And I thought about that when I was rewatching this scene, because when Blair is questioning him and all of a sudden when it clicks, if you watch Richard Mazur's expression, it's like he mirrors that same expression the dog makes when he's kind of giving you that dead eye stare, like all of a sudden you realize he's, when a dog gets backed in a corner, it's almost like now he realizes, oh, Dr. Blair is sort of backing me into a corner and he's giving him that same kind of, a human version, but that same kind of like, what do you get, you know, what are you after? What are you getting at, you know? And it made me interested to see if he did that on purpose. I don't know if he did, but I noticed it in terms of the way the dog looked and then all of a sudden the expression on Richard Mazur's face. Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah, that's a, you know, whether it's conscious or not, it, it does kind of, it really works for the movie too, because it not only does it identify him even more with the dogs and kind of plays into that whole idea, but it also, we're starting to cast a lot of suspicion on Clark. So to have him kind of doing almost a dog-like behavior and kind of thing, you know, a- adds to that suspicion as well, for sure. But yeah, it's that moment when Blair says, uh, it, you mean the dog was only put in the kennel last night? You can totally see the moment in Clark's face when it clicks with him that he realizes he's kind of being threatened. And it, it, definitely the conversation turns really quickly there. And what I love is just like when the handler told the actor, if if Jed ever starts getting a little like the hackles raised or he gives you that sort of dead eye stare, kind of be look down, kind of back away. You look at what Dr. Blair does. The minute Clark gives him that same dead eye stare, it's not like Blair backs down, but he gets much more reserved. He looks down and sort of like says, okay, I'm not going to push this right now. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm alone with this guy. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, this is, this is a pretty great scene. And, and, and we've talked a lot about Richard Mazur and, but you know, Wilford Brimley is kind of the, the star of this scene too. This is one of the parts uh, earlier in the movie when he really be- becomes kind of one of the more primary characters of the movie. And, you know, Obviously, Wilford Brimley takes a lot of flack from from fans for being, you know, obviously everybody jokes about the fact that he's, you know, the Liberty Medical guy and the, the Quaker Oats guy. And, you know, and if you see interviews of him now, he's uh, he's so kind of not the person you would have expected to be in this movie. He's very like he it seems like he found the whole thing kind of silly in retrospect. But, you know, putting all that aside, he's excellent in this movie. And the, the scene in particular, he's really, really good in just 
you know, his concern, his worry about what's actually going to happen is a big part of what makes this movie scary in a, in a bigger sense than just there's monsters running around because he's the one that kind of plants the idea in, in the viewer's head and, um, and the tone of just how this could bring about like the end of the world. And he's the first one who really starts to see the scale of the problem here. And this, I think this scene is where that starts to come across where you really, you, you get a sense of the, the serious predicament that they're in. Oh, absolutely. In fact, in terms of the acting craft, a lot of directors will will try to get actors, especially that come from stage to film, to say, look, less is more on camera. And this is a perfect example where just the pauses, the slower delivery, the the looks, the concentration on his face, you can see the wheels turning. He's trying to figure out and catch up. You got to imagine, I mean, we've all seen sci-fi movies and we've read sci-fi books. So in our heads, of course, the character suddenly realizes, oh, it's a shape-shifting alien that's going to take over the world. But in real life, I mean, think about it. If you came across something like this, you'd probably try to figure out any other possible explanation Mm -hmm. for fear of being, you know, lambasted as being crazy. But you get it. Clark is – he's got his suspicions and he's really starting to piece it together, but he's not sure yet. He doesn't want to articulate anything just yet, but you can sense it. And it is a, it is such a powerful scene. And like you said, growing up, this was the Quaker oatmeal guy. I mean, mm-hmm. I was like Quaker oats, you know? And I remember when I saw this, I was like, how is this guy believable in this movie? I mean, all the other guys, like I knew Kurt Russell and the other guys looked like they were kind of like this ragtag bunch of guys. And here's, you know, Grandpa, you know, Wilford Brimley. <laughs> and, and, and And here he is, but he is so good by the end, you totally forget that that's the guy you were seeing, you know, on Saturday morning cartoons trying to get you to eat oatmeal. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, when, when the first time I saw this movie, I, I did not connect the dots with who he actually was. And then years later, when I, I realized he was the guy that I was seeing on the Liberty Medical commercials in between, you know, The Price is Right, <laughs> and we, you know, daytime TV, right. it kind of blew my mind because I never would have suspected because he's, yeah, he's very, very good and, and very serious in this movie. Well, plus, for, as I don't know how you were first introduced to him, but you have to get past the fact this guy always had a mustache to mm-hmm. me, like. He always looked like Colonel Mustard or something from the Clue game. And it was sort of like – so the first time I saw Sam Elliott shave his mustache off, I'm like, wait a minute. That guy's got a lip, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he definitely – he doesn't really look his, his normal self in this movie. I, I think this is the only thing I've ever seen him in where he doesn't have a mustache, including you know himself in real life all the time. <laughs> right. So one of the other things I wanted to mention in this scene too that I didn't – you know, it's another one of those things that I didn't really notice until watching it you know, super closely in, in this format – is the the sound in this scene too is really really well done and really subtle in that we get the there's that kind of wind noise in the background and that's in the background of almost the entire movie but I think David Udall and the, the rest of the guys on the sound team did a really good job of kind of using that to their advantage to really subtly kind of push the mood so I think through this scene it's the wind noise just really really subtly gets gradually louder and a little bit more intense so that it does kind of you know as as you start to see what's going on as, as Clark's starts to understand what's happening here, it gets a little bit more tense. So I really liked how the this, this sound kind of added to that in a really kind of careful way. Well, who would have thought a sound guy would have noticed sound in a yeah, movie? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and and yet it's, it's a great point because throughout and, – and John Carpenter's does that I think with a lot of his movies, the, his typical hypnotic, the pulsing, the kind mm-hmm. of rhythmic repetition of sounds, you know, the cacophony of sounds that he uses in a lot of his movies. He uses sound to great effect and you're right. The, the blowing wind keeps giving you that sense of, of isolation, but also 
of a coming storm that at any point in time this could get worse because they're always talking about weather through the first part of the movie how you know how bad is the wind can you get the chopper up can we get a signal out it's constantly being sort of both overtly and 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 subtly reinforced you're alone mm-hmm. and at any at any given time it could get really bad yeah that's very true i hadn't thought about it just in terms of the weather specifically but that's very true it definitely gives a sense that of foreboding and and just a sense of cold too i mean on top of obviously you know being able to see their breath and in a lot of the scenes and and you know obviously what they're wearing and everything like that but that, it adds to the believability that they're not on a set too um just in, on the most basic level too so yeah the, the sound in this movie is fantastic but yeah I, I definitely noticed it here was that was a nice touch i thought yeah, and, and I know we're, we're worrying about this minute, but what's cool about going back and looking at every one of these minute by minute is I'm, I'm watching it now with headphones rather than on my yeah. television screen. You do hear so much more of that ambient audio, and you hear where things – you start hearing like the shriek of a monster underneath the shriek of the wind at times, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's great because it plays with your head. You're like, am I hearing the wind howling or am I hearing the thing howling? You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. No, they they did a really good job with with the uh, with the wind noises. I've I've told this story on the show before, but it's it's a good one, so it's worth repeating. That um, when they went out to try and start recording wind sounds before they even started filming the movie, they had a hard time finding actual wind that sounded right, that sounded you know appropriate for the movie, because you know wind is just air moving around. So really, it's just you know if you just hold a mic up, it's just gonna you know distort the microphone, and that's not really the sound that people think of. So the way they were able to f- get the wind sounds for this movie that sounded right were um, actually in the desert in, I think, somewhere in Nevada. David Udall was in a dumpster with his microphone pointed out <laughs> and picking up the sound of the wind going across the top of the dumpster. So it's just one of those things where, like, you had to really experiment to find, you know, it's not the real sound, obviously, but it's it it sounds correct and it works for the tone and the atmosphere of the movie because it creates that that real kind of howling sound that, like you said, at times definitely could be the sound of, of a creature, you know, right around the corner. It's it's very ambiguous. So, yeah, you know, that's a testament to, to you know, determination to try, trying out weird and different things until you find the right right sound or the right piece. And I think that's, that's part of the fun of movie making. I mean, that's the part you and I know from the behind the scenes is, it's got to sound right for what you see on screen, but sometimes you have to go to really odd places to get what you're list- what you mm-hmm. want to hear. Yeah, definitely. That's that's one of the fun things about working in sound for sure. <laughs> so uh, I also love um, at the very end of this minute we get the the cut into the next scene, and I thought that was a, it's a really nice editing move because it's right at the end of their conversation, and Clark is is kind of realized he's being threatened a little bit and and kind of rebuffed uh, Blair. And Blair just, you know, kind of tosses it off, just says, you know, nah, it's probably nothing. It's nothing at all. So we get that last shot of, of Clark, and then it cuts to the next scene uh, in which we cut straight to Blair, who's looking even more kind of concerned and aggravated and, and worried as he stands in the background of the next scene. So it it really kind of carries over. And so it's it's like, it's to me, it's almost like Blair's thought process is being continued silently and in turn, that makes the audience continue to kind of ruminate on what was happening in the last scene because it's almost like the cut just continues for Blair. Like it, there's no change of time for Blair. And if you notice, and you, you'll probably mention this multiple times each, depending which minute where you've got the uh, a larger crowd in the shot. Because mm-hmm. in theater, we worry about this all the time, about our blocking and our eyeline in sight. If you watch, it's 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 intentional to put Blair at the very back of the room but it means there's nobody that can sneak up behind him. Everyone's in front of him. So he's mm-hmm. keeping an eye on everyone. That's a great point. I didn't think about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely it positions him as kind of like he's watching over everybody, and 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 it definitely like he's you know he's also at the back of the room, kind of near the door, like he could get out if he needed to. <laughs> exactly, you know, it's 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 that whole idea of the of the gunslinger who never puts his back to the door. You know, he's got his back up against the filing cabinet. He's closest to the escape, but he's got and he's got everybody else's back turned to him. So he could actually have attacked anybody at this scene had the movie gone a different direction. But in that, <laughs> he's just watching. Not just it's he's the consummate researcher, the scientist in him coming out, but he's also very wary. So it, it's great. Again, it's it's not something they have to hit you over the head with. But when you watch it and you really start to critically see how they establish where people are, it sets that whole tone. And that's probably why this movie works so many years after it's been done and why it's become that cult classic, because things just we feel it, we sense it and, and it and it touches nerves deep inside that we're not even sometimes aware of. But we just are drawn to the storytelling. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's a lot of kind of overt things that make this movie great that obviously people always talk about, like the special effects and, and you know, Kurt Russell's a fantastic anti-hero in the movie and all that kind of uh, kind of more obvious stuff. But yeah, I mean, just looking at this one moment, it's it's a very careful but very purposeful moment of editing and blocking and acting that come together to really create a sense of foreboding. And, and it's a silent moment, but it really uh, sells the fact that you know, if Blair's really starting to get concerned about what's going on here, then we ought to be really worried. <laughs> Absolutely. And and again, this is where we've been introduced to the first attack. We're introduced to the problem. But these char- these actors, the characters that are in the moment, they're st- still trying to catch up. And Blair is one step ahead of them. Yeah. So um, I think that more or less covers... Um, covers most of the stuff that uh that i was gonna bring up um but one thing i always like to do on our first episode is do you do you remember the first time you saw the movie or any any kind of memories about seeing it the first time and and how it affected you or anything like that oh yeah you know in the heyday of vhs rentals because i did not see this in the movie theater and i and i hope this is one of those ones that like a phantom events or something would one day bring back because i'd love to see it on the big screen but it was a rental and it was my brother and I, we were just watching it. We, we had gotten into the horror kick around our, around our early teens, 13, 14 years old. So we were going through and discovering like Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, all of the horror. We were trying to figure out what kind of gross out movies because, you know, we're young guys, right? So we're trying to figure out what's going to work. And we stumbled across this movie because we knew the name John Carpenter from Halloween and from Escape from New York. So we were like, oh, well, we like John Carpenter movies, so let's check this out. And it's sort of like the first time I saw Star Wars. It to this day, I I cannot get over the impact of the visual effects, the storyline, just and then the way the way they chose to end it. Because we always want a heroic ending, and for a movie of like this to be, like you said, you mentioned Kurt Russell, the anti-hero. This is sort of like everyone dies movie or there's no sense that anybody lives. And that was weird for me as a younger movie watcher that wait, there's the hero doesn't live or or we're not sure they're just going to end it. And, and I was always made that kind of an impact on me ever since that moment. Yeah, I, the the ending is certainly one of the the parts that that really grabbed me and and makes it stand apart. But um, yeah, there's just so so many awesome things about this movie that uh, you know obviously we've been examining as we go through it. But you know, and you can choose to take this last little bit out if you want to save it for later. But I know that they shot an alternative ending. And initially had it just in case that showed, uh, uh, you know, Kurt Russell getting back, McCready getting back to civilization. But I think John Carpenter, when he went back into the editing room, realized there's no reason to put a happy spin on it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like from, from what I've read, it sounds like he, Carpenter never wanted to use that at all. He only shot it because the studio kind of made him do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and obviously that, that ending was such a sticking point that, uh, you know, the, the, Carpenter and, and some of the producers and, uh, were really fighting with the studio about it for a long period of time. And it's really the, the kind of Carpenter wouldn't let it go. And that's why the studio kind of, you know, abandoned this movie in a lot of ways. The, they didn't really market it or distribute it in a way that, that was very smart. Now, they obviously could have done it in, in a better way that would have made the potentially made the movie, you know, do a lot better on its initial release. But uh, instead, they put it out two weeks after E.T. came out, which, you know, audience were not particularly uh, happy to go from E.T. to the thing. So, no, um, no, that's a little <laughs> too much of a, of a switch. And, and you know what? This happens sometimes. And as movies go, it didn't quite make its budget back, but it has still survived other movies that were really – there's movie. there have been probably thousands of movies since this one came out that have been relegated to obscurity. And yep. here we are still talking about this one. Yeah. So it's just, you know, it's another sign that, you know, you know, box office returns are not always the sign of of, uh, of a good movie for sure. Because this one has certainly became a, a movie that people talk continue to talk about as we are now, and continues to have that kind of cult status. Whereas there, are, like you said, there are tons of movies, even movies that were very you know critically uh, hailed and or that made lots of money that that you know I'd probably read the name and wouldn't even wouldn't even ring a bell at this point. <laughs> so. Um, cool. I think that will probably wrap up minute uh, 36 for us today. So in the meantime, listeners, you can always go to thethingminute.com for full show notes on every episode, including links to anything we talk about or anything like that. And just make sure to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. (laughs) 